All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Ladies and gentlemen, um, right now, Lisa Robinson is showing us, um, we're on Zoom right now, and he, she just showed me her illustrious record collection, and I'm salivating right now. Okay, what's behind me is a portion, not all of them, of my 5,000 hours of interviews, all the original cassettes, plus manic backups that Richard did, my husband, before he died on CD because he didn't believe in the cloud or the internet or the computers. So he made backups on two or three CDs of every single cassette. Then I had to hire an IT guy after Richard died and he copied it onto two different computers, three external hard drives and three backups of the external hard drives in secure undisclosed locations. So what's behind me are the original interviews, or some of them. I I have to say that I've known you about 20 years, and often I have, I I haven't stayed up at night, but I've definitely wondered, are you properly going to archive your your collection, your collection of notes? And you told me that you have like original hotel notes and stationery. Yeah, yeah. I have an original questionnaire Michael Jackson filled out when he was 11 that I kept in a safety deposit box for years where he Wait, is this the infamous one where he called himself a nigger? He wrote, the question was what's your nickname? And he said the nose and then he wrote N-I-G one word, one G E-R, but he crossed that out. Yeah, that's that one. (laughs) I've heard about about this. I have, where did you hear about it other than me? Because I have it. Nobody well, else has I know it. you, so. Uh... Oh, okay. <laughs> so I have that. that I have letters. Yeah, I have letters from Bowie and John Lennon and everybody on the planet and four storage spaces that I spend $50,000 a year in addition to this museum I'm living in. And um, an office across the street that also houses a lot of shit. And in terms of really properly appraising or archiving it, 
I've been too busy trying to earn a living for all these years. I just haven't had the time. So the audio archives are pretty well documented now. They're on a bunch of databases. The photos, I have trunks and trunks and trunks of original photos from Bob Gruen, Lee Childers, Annie Leibovitz, Peter Hugar, Maplethorpe. I mean, so much stuff that I never hung any of it up. It's in storage, it's in my house in boxes and closets. Um, I actually have something, maybe you would want it. I was in Nashville and I was in a thrift store and there was one of those huge posters of a black barber shop. You know, the drawings with the fabulous kind of old, like some girls kind of yeah, wigs exactly. and things. Like the some girls so kind of rolling stones. I bought stones. it, I bought it and I shipped it back to New York, and this was in 2004, maybe. Okay. And I said to Fran, what, what should I do with this? I was going to either give it to Toni Morrison or Beth Ann Hardison because they collect that kind of stuff. Right. And she said, well, uh, I wouldn't display it. It's really not correct right. for you to display it. So it's hiding somewhere in a closet. It's awesome, though. It is so great looking. Anyway, we're way off. Okay, I have to properly so. introduce you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Questlove Supreme. Um, I knew the second that her mic was on, the stories would come. And of course, the stories came even before I did the proper introduction. <laughs> I will say that our guest, damn near, is a pioneer or invented rock and roll journalism. There was a time in your life where making a living writing about the lives of rock stars was a questionable thing. It, one couldn't make a living off of it. So I will say that um, our guest today is a pioneer in terms of one that actually made their full-time career kind of journaling uh, the, the lives of others. Name them, New Music Express, Cream Magazine, uh, the New York Post even, um, all the way down to Vanity Fair. If you will, she's probably the trusted plus one in the room, she's literally seen everyone and everything. And um, these types of interviews are my favorite because oftentimes I say that um, you'll learn more about a subject um, based on the extra eyes in the room, um, not necessarily the subject themselves. So name them from Jagger to Richards to Paige and Plant to Bowie, Lou Reed, Lennon, Ono, Jackson, Bono. I forgot what Bono's. I forgot what Bono's last name is. It's it's a Houston, black last name. Houston, H E W S O N. That's right, Houston. <laughs> His real name is Paul what? Paul Houston. Paul Houston. That's right. This is like an uncle of mine. Um, name. I don't, I don't recognize gentlemen. any of those names. Did you ever meet anybody famous? <laughs> <laughs> I will say that I highly recommend, as far as memoirs are concerned. Um, both, both of her books, uh, uh, no one ever asked me about the girls and uh, There Goes Gravity. Those are probably uh, two of my favorite memoirs. I don't know, like I, I, rock, journalists to me are like just as equal rock stars as the actual rock stars themselves. So please welcome to Questlove Supreme, Lisa Robinson. Okay, what were you saying, Steve? No, no, I made my joke. Now oh, you made okay. <laughs> his Wait, joke was did just, I ever talk to anyone famous? Just for me, off out 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 the gate, Lisa, for um 
our guests that might not be familiar with your, your pedigree and your history, could you please give me three random historical I was there moments that that come come to mind? You know, this gives you a chance. I was to on a, a plane bit. with Led Zeppelin when their tour manager pulled out a gun. Um, oh, wow. I was on the other end of the was phone. Peter Grant? I, this is Peter Grant. He pulled out a no, gun. No, no, it was Richard Cole. Oh, At okay. any rate, I was. Well, wait, wait. You can't just glide by that. Like, what was well, the circumstances? You just asked for three random. You want me to tell you the whole story? We'd be on for an that's hour. What, yeah, that's what we No, no, for. hold on a second. Let me just say something. Yes. I'm doing a serious radio show, by the way, Sirius XM, starting tomorrow night from yes. 7 to 8 p.m. And it's called Call Me with Lisa Robinson, because as you know, I'm still on an old BlackBerry. I only know how to text on it. Yes. And I like, famous to, for. <laughs> I like people to actually call me. At any rate, okay, so that's one. You keep Texas Instruments in business. Uh, that's a, that much I'll say. <laughs> the second, I, I am World Wide West, who's with the Knicks now, my favorite team, are the only people I know who still use a BlackBerry. Uh-huh. At any rate. Back to the three random incidents. Let me think. I can't think of just three out of thousands, but okay. The Led Zeppelin with a gun, Michael Jackson calling me on the phone, crying that he did not want to tour with his brothers in 1980 on that victory tour. 1984. Mm -hmm. Oh, was it 84? See, you're the scholar. I don't remember all the dates. Okay. So, Oh, man. I don't want to talk about the time Mick Jagger had to borrow my underpants because he lost his jockstrap. But I guess... Oh, that's more backwards, right? (laughs) That's been well documented. Here's the point. I just want to say two things. Okay. You said all the people that I had interviewed and or you started to talk about Bowie, Lou Reed, the Stones, Zeppelin, Michael Jackson, etc., mentioned one woman, Yoko Ono. The reason I wrote Nobody Ever Asked Me About the Girls is because I had interviewed Tina Turner, Joni Mitchell, Mary J. Blige, Linda Ronstadt. Um, I mean, everybody after Janis Joplin. Thank God Mm -hmm. there was someone before my time. And the point is, I always had to answer questions like, what's Eminem really like? What's Kanye like? I mean, you know, you probably get the same thing. What was John Lennon really like? Or what was David Bowie really like? And I finally got to the point after having written There Goes Gravity, which was mostly all about guys, except for one chapter on Lady Gaga. I thought it's about time I started dealing with the women. So that was one thing I just wanted to clarify. And the other thing is when you said that I was a pioneer at a time when no one was making a living writing about rock and roll musicians or popular culture, we still don't make a living doing that. <laughs> so I just say, would yeah. like to clarify that for the record. Um, we were having too much fun. Nobody was talking about money. Nobody was thinking about that in the 70s. I would make like $40 a week from a syndicated column or editing Hit Parader with my husband or going on tour with Zeppelin and the Stones or hanging out with CBGBs every night. And I thought this was great. I mean, we were in a rent-controlled apartment. I'm still in a rent-stabilized apartment. Same one we moved into in 1976. And it's like a museum. I never decorated it. It's just full of books and records and interviews and some memorabilia that I don't trust to leave in Manhattan mini storage. Um, But it just was different time. It was like also... Amir, you know, 
you grew up in this business. I mean, I even think I saw as a kid, Leander's and the Hearts, I don't know, maybe at the Brooklyn Fox or one of those places, I snuck out of my house mm-hmm. as a teenager to go see Thelonious Monk at the Five Spot mm-hmm. or John Coltrane or Anita O'Day and Stan Getz at the Village Vanguard, but also to go to those early rock and roll shows at the Brooklyn Fox Theater. I don't remember going to the Apollo, but I do remember going to the Apollo much later when I was teaching school in Harlem in the 60s. But I grew up with all this music. I used to listen to it under the covers with the transistor radio, you know, that old cliche. And it just made me feel like there was a great, sexy, interesting world out there. And I was a fan. And I grew up in a left-wing household that played Lead Belly and Woody Guthrie, and I knew about Mama Mae Thornton and Sister Rosetta Thorpe, and you know, a lot of stuff that no other journalists when I was starting out knew about, um, except for my husband, who was on WNEWFM when it was 1969 free form music. And I heard his voice in the middle of the night, he was on the graveyard shift. And I thought, A, he had a very sexy voice, and B, he played unbelievable music, and he got fired five times. The first <laughs> time was for playing, playing music. what they called unfamiliar music, which was Ike and Tina Turner. Tina Turner and Vanetta Fields doing a battle on something got a hold on me. I'll never forget it. P.P. P. Arnold doing First Cut is the Deepest. Um, Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions, because he also worked at Buddha. So right. he worked with uh, Curtis okay. and the Oh, with Neil Burgart. So, yeah. So Richard got fired for playing unfamiliar music, which was black music. Then they hired him back again because he was like the house tippie. And he got fired for playing Jimi Hendrix's Star Spangled Banner because they told him it was unpatriotic. Whoa. Then they hired him again. And I think he played the Stooges and the Velvets but like really, you know, some of the sicker stuff, like I want to be your dog or heroin or white light, white heat, or just kind of noise stuff. They fired him again. And I think the last time they hired him, he just went on the air, flushed the toilet and walked off. And <laughs> so this was my introduction to the music business. I went to work for him doing his filing. Five months later, we got married. He turned one of his columns over to me in England, and that's kind of how it started. He opened a door and I barged through it. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. 
Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What I'll say is based on, um, you know, I've collected a lot of old periodicals and all those things. So I've seen your work. You know, I'll say that the difference between your brand of, of, documenting a moment was way different than say you know the Beatles would land in America in the 60s and have a press conference like at the airport or at the hotel and people have random questions it's like audience crowd work or whatever but your brand work how did you know that I mean it's somewhere between like page you know I know that you've done in-depth Q&A interviews as well but you know you doing quick takes like, uh, you know, Bowie hung out at Max's Kansas City and he wore a leopard T-shirt. Like people weren't describing like what people were wearing or any of those things. Like you you were like the precursor to like page six. So how did you even know? I don't know about page six, but maybe MTV and fashion and style. Yeah. Like the idea of it. Right. Well, first of all, thank God the Beatles were before my time, something else before my time. But I never asked a question at a press conference because I always ask more interesting questions and I didn't want anybody else getting the answers. Although Kanye Kanye had a listening party once for which is the album? Is it Late Graduation that John Bryan produced with We Major and Gold Digger on it? Uh, the second mm-hmm. one. Um, yeah. Late yeah, Reg. Anyway, he had a listening party for that with a whole bunch of press in the room. And Jay was there and I'm friendly with John Bryan and I knew he produced the record and I had met Kanye several times through John. And when they played We Major, I went ballistic because to this day <laughs> I still think it's the best thing he's ever done but it was like a Phil Spector symphony and I just went crazy so I had to ask a question and I raised my hand and Jay went oh Lisa has a question Lisa has a question and I said how many tracks are on Lee Major and they had no idea 
They didn't know. They didn't know the answer. And so they started calling me the stumper. For a long time, actually, Jay started calling me, kept calling me the stumper. And I went home and called John Bryan, who told me that he got it from some kid in the garage who made a loop of it. At any rate, what I did as a journalist from the jump was I was interested in their lives, their music. I mean, when I met Jimmy Page, I would talk to him about Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf and Elmore James and Willie Dixon, who they ripped off, allegedly, although I think they had to pay him. Oh, no, nah, it wasn't no allegedly. <laughs> you know they ripped him off. No, nah, it wasn't no allegedly. They stole that shit. <laughs> okay. Well, I get very nervous about that. So, you know, it's like a Jesus and Mero thing. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Right, right. Anyway, so, so, um, and I, but I'd also talk to Robert Plant about Fairport Convention and Kaleidoscope and Incredible String Band and Joni Mitchell because... I grew up the same, loving the same music they did. And I, I didn't love a lot of the folk stuff so much then. I grew to, I did like the Incredible String Band but, and Kaleidoscope. But I would talk to them about their musical taste. I would write about their clothes. I mean, I'll never forget when I was in New Orleans with those guys, the first time I ever interviewed them lengthily, Robert was wearing a red nylon Speedo bikini parading around the pool. Parading is the only word I could use for it. And mm-hmm. Jimmy Page was wearing a maroon velvet jacket in mm-hmm. 83 degree weather. And I remember writing that it was sweltering at 83 degree weather. So mm-hmm. some of the climate change, that was 1973. Anyway, I just started talking to them about music. I started talking to them about their clothes And this was a time that people don't know. They were written about as a heavy, cheesy, heavy metal band. Every male journalist, every one of my so-called colleagues who threatened to quit Cream Magazine when I started to do a column called Eleganza, which was named after a Black Pimp catalog. And it was all about clothes. (laughs) And all these guys threatened to leave the magazine because they said it was decadent. I shouldn't be writing about clothes. This was the alternative culture. This was the revolution. I mean, this is in Detroit, by the way, where the White Panthers and John Sinclair were sitting around a table plotting revolution while the women were in the kitchen cooking. So I would just like to make that point about the MC5, um, even though they were a great band. However, I would always talk to these guys just on a level of mutual musician fandom and ask them about their lives. I didn't review their records. I didn't review their concerts. I didn't do any boring analysis shit about their lyrics. And I just think they were relieved. I mean, again, this was at a time when John Mendelssohn wrote in Rolling Stone about the Lemon Song that was on a Zeppelin, I think the first album, maybe the second. And he said, Robert Plant sings notes only a dog can hear. And if I remember that from 1973, you can be certain that Robert Plant remembers it. And Jimmy would bitch about the reviews all the time. And I would just say, I don't give a shit about reviews. You don't understand. Your music is majestic. You combine the hard rock and the folk music and Eastern stuff and all this. And years from now, your music will be remembered. And those magazines and newspapers will wrap fish. And sure enough, now Led Zeppelin is considered one of the greatest. 
I mean, it's Exile on Main Street was panned. It was my favorite Rolling Stones record, panned when it first came out. So I think part of the reason that I had the access to these bands was A, I was a woman, but I was not sleeping with them and I was not taking drugs with them. I was newly married. Richard was much cuter than any of them were anyway and smarter. <laughs> um, and when I first met Mick Jagger, the first thing I said to him was, those are the tackiest shoes I've ever seen because he was wearing some sort of sequin papagallo encrusted shoes that was backstage at an Eric Clapton concert. And, you know, that was refreshing to them. People would meet Mick Jagger and they'd be like intimidated. Right. I was from New York. I wasn't intimidated. Well, okay. So what I want to know is obviously you're from, even though you're, of the time you were clearly thinking future generation. Case in point, like Prince opening for the Stones in LA, even though he himself is a baby boomer, his music and his presentation is for Generation Next, it's for what's next. So obviously, you know, you you were forward thinking. Who who were the other women in that era that was documenting? I, I know that uh you know, you, you spoke of a time where you and, and Fran Leibowitz, uh came up together on that the Stones tour. But like, were there? No, no, oh, you're Annie other... Leibowitz. You mean the photographer, not Fran. Annie, Annie. Leibowitz, not, not, no, I, I said, no, I said Fran. My said Fran. <laughs> Forgive me. Annie Leibowitz. It's okay. I know. Um, correction. Annie well, Leibowitz. Well, no, Annie, Annie had already been at Rolling Stone. So Annie had already established her reputation as a photographer when she was at Rolling Stone. Um, we started working together on the 1975 Stones tour. Um, That's before Cox Sucker, Sucker Blues or? That was during that tour. Where, was Stevie um, opening oh, or was that, that was afterwards? That was the big phallus coming up from the butterfly stage, yeah. Oh, okay. And yeah. also we kept thinking every city we went to that they were gonna get arrested for singing Starfucker. Imagine. <laughs> and, I'm trying to remember other things that, oh God, there's so much that went on on that tour. I remember Mick saying to me at the time that he couldn't get a pill. This is a little gross, but he said, you can't get a pill for diarrhea, but you can walk into any store and buy a gun. And this was in 1975. And I had no idea that you could walk into a store in the South and buy a gun. I'm from New York City. I'm from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I'd never seen a gun until I saw it on that plane with Led Zeppelin. But um, it was, I mean, we were on tour. Underground Atlanta had a Lester Maddox store where they sold Lester Maddox memorabilia. I mean, it just well. was such a different time. It was like, for those who don't know, Lester Maddox was the racist yeah. Is he governor, governor of Georgia or something, or mayor of Atlanta or some political person? Very much like Lindsey Graham or somebody today, right. only yeah. worse. I right. mean, more, well, more whatever. I'm not going to say it. That would be an allegedly defamation. <laughs> um, oh, like so, we'd be shocked yeah. if we found anything out else about Lindsey Graham. <laughs> no, I know, I know. But I'm not going to say it. Anyway, yeah. the bottom line is I... Yeah, he was the governor. Uh, yeah. So I was sort of a conduit between a lot of these guys. Like Richard was at RCA Records and convinced them to sign David Bowie, Lou Reed and the Kinks. So I introduced David Bowie when he came to America 
to Lou Reed and to Iggy Pop, both oh, of wow. whom he was very inspired by. Let's put it that way. And I came to my house. They hung out. Lou Reed used to come to my house because Richard produced his first album, uh, although it really did not do well because Lou was a mess at the time and it was a very checkered situation. But then Lou and Richard didn't talk for years, but then Lou called him back and asked him to co-produce Street Hassle with him, which is a great record. And so because of our friendship with Lou or my friendship with Patti Smith or my going on the Stones tour or John Lennon and Yoko letting me in their house from 1975 to 80 to do interviews, Bowie would say to me, what's Mick Jagger doing? And Mick Jagger would say to me, don't tell that idea to Bowie because he'll steal it. Or John Lennon would say to me, I just heard Stairway to Heaven, tell Robert Plant it's great. And then I would tell that to Robert Plant and he'd say, he only heard it now. I mean, it was like, <laughs> I, was friends, I was friends with Brian Ferry when he was living with Jerry Hall and she was dating. And I put quotes around that, Mick Jagger. And I never said a word about it because here's the other thing. I was like a fly on the wall. I would not take notes in front of people. I, some, if we were doing a real interview, I'd have my tape recorders on. You've seen them, the analog tape recorders. Yes, you still my have setup. that Sony, that, that machine? I have three of them right behind me. Yeah, <laughs> um, have I you ever have conducted an interview like digitally? Or are they all, well, like, what happens if you run story? out of cassette? Hold on, this is really, actually, we'll do this tangent for a second. Then I'll get back to the, um, why these guys and these women trusted me. When I first interviewed John Lennon, I went with one analog tape recorder, Sony cassette, right. and the tape fucked up. So right. he let me go back the next day and do it again. So from that day on, in 1970, whenever it was, when did they first move to New York? I don't know, it was around 72, 73. 73, yeah. Yeah, from that day on, I always took three tape recorders. And one of them, I would have an external mic, two of them would not. Inevitably, one of the three would screw up, but at least I had two. So I had a backup. Right. When I first interviewed Beyonce in 2004 or five, when was the last Destiny show? I think it was 2005 when she was on the cover of Vanity Fair. Yeah. So she looked at my setup and she just very politely, because she's very charming, said, um, did you ever think of moving up to digital? And I wasn't even embarrassed. I just thought, oh, digital. I don't know. Probably not. And then I went home and I said, Richard, maybe I should get a digital tape recorder because people are making fun of me. And so he, <laughs> got, a digital he got a digital tape recorder. He made a diagram for me that was literally like in crayons as if it were for a five-year-old with like step one, step two, do this, do that press play, color-coded on the goddamn thing. And when I first interviewed Lady Gaga in 2010 at the Beverly Hills Hotel, I very proudly brought out the digital tape recorder along with my free analog cassette. And guess which one didn't work? The, the digital. Digital, digital right. So, you know, somebody says, <laughs> stick with what you know, I've stuck with what I know. But back to being a fly on the wall with these guys and these women and whoever I interviewed, and much later on, I always respected people's private lives you have to remember there were no there was no cell phones no mm -hmm. internet no instagram 
know everybody with a telephone, with a picture, with a camera. Right. So these guys, especially the Zeppelin, who had wives and children back in England, had U.S. girlfriends. Let's put it that way. Um, these were uh, groupies. We call them and joints. some of them were yes. really their girlfriends. Yes. And I thought, I'm not going to write about this. They've got wives and kids back in England, and it's really none of my fucking business. And it's nobody else's business either. And I think in that way, I was trusted. Not because I was writing like puff pieces about them or anything. Mm -hmm. I just was respectful and not invasive. To the point, I may add, where I was so respectful and not invasive that I toured a lot with Elton John. Of course, I knew he was gay. He was right. showing me his handbag collection, for God's sakes. And I mean, we were friends, but he wasn't out. And I was not about to out him. Whereas somebody else might have done that, but then they never would have seen him again. So Did he acknowledge, at least then, during his prime, that he was out or was just like unspoken? No, no, this was way before and before he even married that woman, Renata, who was right. his engineer. This was in the early 70s, and I'd be on the plane with him, and we'd be screaming and having fun and shrieking, and I'd, you know, we'd just talk very comfortably with each other. I mean, I, I can't explain it. I think in one way, this is going to sound braggy, but it's not that. I think I was more sophisticated than a lot of the rock journalists. I was from New York. None of them had gone to see Thelonious Monk at the fire spot, I can assure you. Right. Not at the age I went anyway. And I just had a different kind of confidence and I wasn't cowed by any of this. And I just respected people's private lives. And if somebody told me something was off the record, it was off the record to this day. And Can I ask you something? Yeah. You don't have to tell a story. You don't have to tell a name, but I'm just curious. How many secrets will go to your grave that you like will never admit to the world? Well, I know in general you won't admit it because you just Okay, say well, here's you. the thing. Now I'll tell you. Here's the thing. How many, how many secrets? To finish like, with you know that Stevie Wonder is not blind. Like how many secrets? <laughs> Although when I did talk to Stevie Wonder and we were in his studio and I told him I had analog cassette recorders he, he said wait a minute, wait a minute. i gotta give was. you now i was joking like he knew what side one and side two was of the cassette nobody <laughs> took me into his kitchen opened a cabinet pulled out from the top shelf a dat recorder and gave it to me i still have it in the packaging in one of my storage spaces because stevie wonder gave it to me i'm not going <laughs> to use it and then i ran into him and mr charles last year and i went up to him and i said i'm lisa robinson from vanity fair do you remember when annie and i came to photograph you and you gave me that machine he went yeah that dat machine so, you know, I was watching Hustlers the other night, and I know there's a line in there where Jennifer Lopez says, I swear to God, Stevie Wonder came into the club. He's not blind. I mean, yes. why would someone pretend to be blind? Come on. Really? Marketing. I mean, Marketing. <laughs> <laughs> no. How many secrets will you carry Here's to your grave? Here's the thing. There are certain people who have passed away mm -hmm. that now I feel I can say certain things about. Okay? I mean... I won't mention all the names, but when Sign of the Times came out, 
I went mm -hmm. to hear it at a musician's apartment. He had an advanced pressing and he kept looking at me to see what I thought. And of course I was blown away. I mean, mm -hmm. blown away. And he said to me about another rock star. He said to me, this is Mick talking. He, the other rock star said to me, if he was white, we'd all be in trouble and out of business. Now, <laughs> I don't know if that's been printed anywhere and people know who said it to whom. I don't know that I would write that because those two guys are still alive. Prince right. isn't. But I did tell him that. And I told him that at his house. And I told him several times that he was an unbelievably underrated guitar player. And he said, why don't you write that? I said, why don't you let me interview you with a tape recorder? And I'll write whatever you want. You can tape me taping you. I mean, I, I did that a little bit with Kendrick. You know, sometimes in order to make somebody feel comfortable, I would say things like, listen, if you're really nervous about something and you think I'm going to misquote you, although I won't because I transcribed every single one of my interviews myself in longhand. And I right. never would miss, I'm the only journalist I trust. Let's put it that way. I don't like journalists. I don't trust many of them, if any. And um, what I went through in the early seventies with all those guys trying to blackball me. I mean, the other women that were around Lillian Roxton, who wrote the Rock Encyclopedia, was my best friend at the time. She was a very brilliant bohemian Australian woman, and she died in 1973. Gloria Stavers, who edited 16 magazine, she also died in 1983, I think. Right. She edited 16 magazine, but before 16 magazine, she was a Norman Norell, very high fashion designer model in the 40s. She dated mm -hmm. Lenny Bruce. She dated Jim Morrison. I'm not sure dated is the right word, but whatever. Those were mm -hmm. the only women who were my mentors. The rest of the women writing about music were critics. There was Ellen Willis, the New Yorker. There was Janet Maslin from the Boston Phoenix. There was Ellen Sander from Life Magazine, and they reviewed things. They were critics. They didn't do interviews. So I would do interviews with the tape on. Then I would also hang out with them at after hours clubs, at parties, when they rehearsed in rehearsal studios, in people's bedrooms, like Earl McGrath used to have parties in New York and the Stones would rehearse with Eric Clapton and Ronnie Wood one night in that room. I remember Annie taking pictures. Um, I would go out to the Andy Warhol's compound in the Hamptons where they were staying before the 75 tour. I would go, I would, I took Michael Jackson to Studio 54 the first time he ever went. Um, I took the Clash to Studio 54. I got the Clash, their record deal. I got Elvis Costello's record deal. I never made a dime from this. I was so stupid. I never thought about money. I mean, we didn't think about money. We were having fun. We were young. It was the 70s. And I was getting to see all these concerts for free. And prior to that, I had to pay to go see a concert. <laughs> we were getting all these albums for free. Um, Since you were there when it was rebel music and then it slowly morphed, I, I guess one could say that that 75 tour of the Stones was sort of them becoming the seeds of what we now know as the Rolling Stones, more like an institution and less about, 
you know, the Hydra daughters, rock, rock rebels that are coming to town to pillage. But when, when do you consider, what was the year that you saw this is now a business, not just, you know, rock and roll? I saw it, I, I saw it right from the beginning. I saw it with Led Zeppelin when I went to see them in Jacksonville in um, July 1973, and they played to an 80,000-seat stadium. All right, y'all, you know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic. So slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Um, I, have, I have a different question. Um, Lester Bangs. Hi. Uh, do you, yeah. Can you tell our audience about <laughs> Lester Bangs? Yeah, I was going to say, of your contemporaries, I guess Lester has this, you know, the the cooler than thou rock, you know, cr- you know, jaded critic. Oh. Yeah. Was the legend bigger than what he actually yes, was? Yes, 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 yes. The myth was greater than the reality. All right, pull the curtain. Lester the was curtain. drunk. Lester was, okay. Richard, my husband, was first working for Buddha Records, and then he was working for RCA Records. So he had expense accounts. So even though we were living in a rent-controlled apartment and we didn't have a lot of money, he had an expense account. So I would order Chinese food, and we would feed and entertain these unbelievably, what's the word I used in my book? Um, I don't know. It was a thankless task. Let's put it that way. A lot of these guys would come and sleep on our sofa. I felt like we were, people said we had this salon. We did not have a salon. We had a homeless shelter. I mean, Dave Marsh would come in from Detroit and sleep on our sofa. 
Lenny Kay lived there for almost a year on our floor in the living room. You know, John Landau would come in from Boston when he was writing at the Phoenix before he discovered the future of rock and roll and his name was Bruce Springsteen. Um, Richard Meltzer and Lester Bangs were there a lot. Richard Meltzer was the real deal. He was a better writer. He was smarter. He was crazy. Lester was drunk. And Lester was also crazy and drunk and obnoxious, quite frankly. I mean, the myth in many of these things is greater than the reality. He has been lionized so much, not in a small part by Cameron Crowe and that movie, but um, I only remember the drunken nights when we had to like whisper, like, how are we gonna get Lester out of here? You know, <laughs> or Richard Meltzer would be walking around with his shirt off and a bottle of scotch. And I don't know, he's still somewhere alive writing. And I haven't read him recently, but to me, he was the real thing. And Lester got all of the credit. And I don't know whether he emulated Richard, but Richard was much more interesting and insightful, I felt. Anyway. So yeah. I have my observations in, in hip hop journalism when I saw the shift occur where like people who I truly respected for their opinions were writing about music as opposed to now uh, the, un the, the intern from four years ago now getting their cover story. You know, just like, you know, the, the, the level of, of hip hop journalism has, has gone to, to shit in my opinion. But for you, when, when was music or rock journalism at its, at, its, at its best, in your opinion? And when did you notice that there's a shift? You know, like, I'm do you guys, And in terms of, no, no, just in terms of really giving a good story. Um, oftentimes, like, uh, okay, I know that if, like, say today, uh, Pitchfork, Sometimes they'll pan an album just to impress their contemporaries mm -hmm. to, you know, in that Lester Bangs way where you're not writing your honest opinion about something. You want to do a performative bash. Well, it might have been his honest opinion. I mean, he had very many run-ins with Lou Reed. I don't really. Here's the thing. I never read this. I don't know. I mm -hmm. did what I did because I wanted to read what I wanted to read. I mean, Toni Morrison always said, write the book you want to read. It's like, or write the book that you want to write or whatever, I don't know. Listen, when the Roots started playing instruments, mm -hmm. why did you do that? Hip hop bands weren't playing instruments. You did that, why? Because you wanted to hear a band that was doing hip hop play instruments or doing rap play instruments. I did what I did because nobody else was doing it. So, I mean, I never even thought about it. I just did it. And I really didn't read a lot of that stuff. I don't think I've ever looked at Pitchfork in my life. I didn't look <laughs> at Complex. I didn't look at, I maybe looked at the at Vibe and the Source and Rolling Stone a little bit, but I never really read Rolling Stone because I didn't like the person who owned it. And I didn't like the way women were treated in that office. And it is, really a badge of honor, 
as far as I'm concerned, that I never wrote for them. And I'm being really blunt and frank with you. I'll probably get a lot of haters about a lot of this stuff, but I just, I didn't really read it. I read Cream Magazine a little bit. I mean, I read my husband's column. He did a Rewire Yourself years before anybody was writing about technology. He wrote a book called The Video Primer. Yeah, Richard, Richard said two things that stick out in my mind that are so brilliant. One was everybody kept saying in the 70s, who's the next Beatles? Who's the next Beatles? Which band is going to be the next Beatles? And Richard said, the next Beatles is going to be a machine. This was in 1971. Okay, so that that's who I was married to. He also said about musicians, because for one minute we were managing some musicians, which really was not a smart move. But he always said managing an act is like running backwards, holding up a mirror. So, you know, I Mm. just didn't read this stuff. So I can't say when I think it shifted, if it did shift. What I read, I read, I don't know, what, what did I read? Rock journalism? Not really, because nobody was doing what I was interested in. I was doing what I was interested in. And I'm not saying that to sound conceited or anything because a lot of people weren't interested in what I was writing about but I was much more interested in the human side and I wasn't seeing that in too many places certainly not when I started and I'm not even sure now I mean I occasionally read a profile in the New York Times magazine section about somebody I'm interested in and I'll stop halfway through because they're just so long I mean I also feel leave somebody wanting more You know, it's like, I take it as the biggest compliment when I've done cover stories in Vanity Fair and people have said to me, oh my God, I wish it was longer. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel. My my final question to you is with with the life that you you lived in all of your archives and memories and whatnot, are you actively trying to seek a I feel like the next step for you is is basically either as a movie or as a series like the Netflix series. Yeah. yeah, like you're this this is a no-brainer. Has has anyone approached you about you know, the couple of people who have I wouldn't want to really work with. You want to do something, I'll do something with you. I mean, I'm serious. I don't know. I think between now and death, I don't know what I want to do. I do want to place all this stuff. I mean, I want to sell it because I need the money, but I also want to place all this stuff with people who love it. That's why I first talked to you about the albums, Amir, because I don't want to see these albums go to some record store in Brooklyn where somebody's going to buy one of this and three of that and two of that. I just want the collection to be with someone who loves it. You know, Q-Tip actually did make his way over here one night to look at them. And he started looking up every album and appraising it and figuring out the prices. And then he said, I'm sending my assistant back to see you next week and we're going to do this. And that was... A year ago. No, that was one, two, three, three and a half years ago, I think. Um, (laughs) And I'm coming over there to scoop them. As I'm sorry. As, as for what? I said, I'm coming over there to scoop them. Okay, after I get my second vaccine shot. I have never been so happy in my life when they lower the age and I'm, you know, old enough finally to get this <laughs> vaccine. But um, 
honestly, I want the archives, the tapes. I do want it to go maybe to an institution where people can listen to it and study it and learn from it or do a series of podcasts or do a series of documentaries. I don't know. The problem is I always was too busy just earning a living and getting through every day. And now starting this serious radio show, which is just once a week, I'll be able to talk, which I love better than writing. Um, I don't know if I want to write another book. I don't know. I don't know who else I want to interview. I mean, you talk about how did I know the future of rock and roll was CBGBs? I didn't. I just was there when it happened. And it just seemed right. It was fun. Um, if I had been able to predict the future, first of all, as Fran Lebowitz says, I would pick better lotto tickets. But also, <laughs> I would have known about hip hop before I did. Um, because that's inexcusable that I was living in New York City and I didn't even know that this was going on for quite a while. Because as I said, it's still the music that it's on my iPod, that and Frank Sinatra and some Thelonious <laughs> Monk and Earl Garner. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you, Lisa. Steve, you want to ask Steve. me something? Yeah, like, well, you know, why, why aren't you just airing these, um, these legendary um, interviews that you have as as complete as a podcast as a podcast yeah well because somebody hasn't made me the right offer yet when they do mm -hmm. i will because that's, that's the you check. Know, yeah that i mean the show i'm doing for serious is just a call-in show because i wanted to do something like Stephen a smith does you know i wanted people calling in and oh, like sports me, but for music well, he does that for sports. I'm going to do it for music. Okay, but great. I could do it for basketball, too. I could name you the starting five on all 30 teams. You know yeah, I was about basketball. to say, no one loves the Knicks more than you do. And I'm like... I'm one of those long-suffering oh, Knicks fans. So I know you're happy about this three wins in a row that they had. <laughs> Come on. At least they're competitive. At least it's watchable. It's yeah. not like it was. Julius Randle is good. I love Emmanuel quickly. And don't even get me started on the New Jersey Nets, because that's a whole other thing. Well, Lisa, we thank you. We've been trying to make this happen for years. I'm, I'm, I'm proud that you got your technology set up uh, on and oh, working. Oh, just to be able to do Zoom. Yeah, thank you. I had to hire an <laughs> IT guy to do that. I, I thought, <laughs> you yeah, I thought it was going to be. You better come here and look at those albums, Amir, seriously. Yeah, no, I just, I just okay. want to say I'm proud of you getting over your technology fears and doing this, because, you know, you and I often had uh, the Flintstone bird writing a message sending pigeons to our windows kind of relationship so one day i'm gonna get you to use an iphone for real i have an iphone i just <laughs> I want you to, to use it to i listen to music on it i go to youtube and i google and i make phone calls okay. outgoing when you i travel when i used to right. travel you up to 2000 okay lisa robinson ladies and gentlemen quest left supreme on yes, behalf thank of you so much why uh fontigolo and Sugar Steve. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, we will see you on the next go round. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, thanks, guys. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte. Make sure you keep up with us on Instagram at QLS and let us know what you think and who should be next to sit down with us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. All right? Peace. What's Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.